Welcome to the Strive Podcast, where we embark on a captivating journey through the fascinating realms of mind, medicine, and motivation. I'm Cy Munnam, a medical student at the University of Pennsylvania, and I'm absolutely delighted to have you join me on my conversation with Dr. Patrick Brennan, the Chief Medical Officer of the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Beginning his medical odyssey as an infectious disease specialist, Dr. Brennan now helms clinical leadership, ensuring optimal safety standards and operational excellence within the health system. Today, we delve into his role evolution, his approaches to clinical leadership and quality operations, and his insights on the intersection of innovation and healthcare. Without further ado, let's welcome Dr. Patrick Brennan. Hi, Dr. Brennan. Morning, Sam. Nice to see you. Nice to see you again. How are you doing this fine morning? I'm well. I'm well. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. So I I thought this would be a very exciting episode just because the audience would get a different perspective of medicine and the health system in general, just because I think leadership within medicine, you you associate with like a department or uh, various uh, administrative roles within clinical medicine. But I think from a higher level, having administration with a medical background and degree uh, also impact uh, patient care and the general operations of a health system is very important as well. So could you just provide a brief overview of your day-to-day responsibilities as the CMO of UPHS? Sure. Um, I keep on my desk a one-page document with five bullet points. And uh, those are my uh, annual goals. Uh, there are five, five bullet points this year. But that's what I focus on and what I try to be working on every day. And if I'm not, I'm probably off track in some way. Uh, they're, they're broad, so there are a lot of things that will fall under those. But generally speaking, uh, I'm trying to uh, assure that we achieve our goals for the year. Um, uh, really, in, uh, in all aspects, uh, as a health system, but particularly under uh, quality and safety. So, uh, you know, that, that means trying to uh, improve the outcomes of care and uh, reducing, reducing harm to our patients. There are some other activities that are, uh, are important to me uh, in the coming year, uh, including fostering uh, an environment of high reliability. We've been on a very specific high reliability journey in the last couple of years that will help us achieve our, our goals as a, as a health system. And, uh, and those, are, those are probably the two major goals uh, among, among those five. But what that evolves into on a daily basis is <clears throat> meetings and walk rounds and, and fostering activities and encouraging activities and finding solutions to impediments to activities that will help us achieve those goals. And it almost seems like there's like a higher level picture to it rather than, I guess, the daily specific interdepartmental functions of a health of like a clinical department or whatever you're almost allocating resources new initiatives for the health system in general so that it trickles down into these departments mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a good insight uh, very good insight um, there was a period <clears throat> in my career where I was the chief medical officer for HUP and for the health system concurrently it was a point in time where um, uh, as, as the health system in its uh, smaller iteration uh, 15 to 20 years ago um, had, had come together and a lot of the executives who had corporate, who had, had roles at HUP, I should say, also assumed corporate roles. And uh, over time, as the health system grew, those roles were teased apart 
And so there's a chief medical officer for HUP and all of the other hospitals, and I'm the chief medical officer for the health system. So in that sense, I've stepped back from the day-to-day -day operations. There's a powerful pull in day-to-day -day operations. There's a tremendous urgency about that. Um, you know, you're putting out fires, you're addressing uh, backups in the emergency department and, you know, crises of various kinds, along with the goals for that specific part of the health system, HUP in my case. Uh, but, you know, stepping back, my role now is <clears throat> more of a strategic one. And as you point out, uh, helping people get resources and uh, uh, the sources of funding that they need to, to accomplish uh, uh, key objectives. So, for example, I have things on my budget related to the opioid crisis. And, uh, you know, I, I support uh, uh, graduate medical education through my budget. That's, that's part, of my, part of my portfolio. But the opioid crisis, you know, isn't necessarily so, and um, you know, it's something that I think is think is really important, and uh, uh, and and you know, work closely with Jean Marie Perrone on that, for example, and try to find funding and try to find try to give guidance, you know, political navigational guidance within the health system as to how we, you know, can achieve the funding we need to do the things that we want to do. And with how big University of Pennsylvania health system is. Um, it's almost like somewhat like a business entity on its own, right? Yeah. And um, in terms of just managing patient care within that sphere, mm -hmm. um, how can you run like a big institution like that with a lot of moving parts mm -hmm. while also keeping your, you know, the goals that you have for the year, or mm -hmm. uh, your main priority of improving patient outcomes still in mind? Mm -hmm. Well, again, you know, the, the operators, so to speak, the people that are involved in day-to-day -day operations are, uh, are, are managing, you know, what's happening at the bedside and on inpatient units and ambulatory practices. But what I'm trying to do is, is align the work, uh, their work with the goals of the system. So <clears throat> this year, one of our major objectives is to improve access to care. I think there are three really important issues that are intertwined in healthcare right now. One is the workforce, having enough people, literally enough people, enough of the right kinds of people with the right level of, level of training. Access to care. If you don't have enough people, you're not going to have enough access to care. And then financial sustainability. And if we have enough people and we're providing good access to care, the revenue is is going to come in and and will be in a bit more financially sustainable position. So, you know, I'm trying to do things that help foster those. Now, I, I don't have responsibility for finance, but access, um, you know, I, I can help foster that by uh, fostering the work that's done to reduce complications in in healthcare and reduce the sort of events that prolong hospitalization and block beds and keep people from, you know, getting into our hospitals when there's a tremendous demand for, for our beds. And, um, you know, there are people all over the region in some of our own hospitals and in other hospitals trying to get in to get the advanced care that, uh, that we can deliver. And unless we have enough people to be efficient and move inpatients through our system in a timely fashion, patients are going to be staying longer than they should. And that blocks others in the community from getting in here. And so, uh, you know, those are the kind of things that I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm, working, I'm working on alignment and, and establishing the goals related to alignment that will help us achieve our, our access goals. That's, that's really our major quality goal for this year.
We actually started a health system science course uh -huh. yesterday, uh -huh. yep. and uh, our preceptor was telling us how one of the biggest issues in the healthcare system in the hospitals in general is mm -hmm. just staffing, like you said, and mm -hmm. you know just bedding, like having enough space for patients yep. to be in. So yeah. I think those are very important things to yeah. address. And your journey started off as an infectious disease specialist, right? Right. Right. How did it evolve? How did your role within the health system evolve uh, to get to the place you are right mm -hmm. now? Um, when, uh, I, I've heard someone say that when people, you know, give a narrative of their, their career, uh, or life, uh, it tends to smooth out all the bumpy spots and it looks like a, a planned trajectory that, you know, that led from, you know, the starting point to, uh, the point at which they are now. And, uh, you know, so as I tell the story, it, it may sound that way, but there were, ups and downs and disappointments and, uh, you know, blind alleys. But basically, uh, you know, over several decades, I see myself as having moved from the bedside without ever having totally left the bedside uh, to populations. So I started out <clears throat> as an infectious diseases fellow here at Penn and um, um, was doing a laboratory fellowship uh, after my clinical fellowship and um, was uh, asked to consider a clinical position because the uh, the hospital was <clears throat> the hospital's transplant programs were really expanding dramatically at that point in time and we had just started a new trauma program and those programs were looking for <clears throat> consistent infectious diseases input they wanted someone working with them who understood their patients, understood the way the surgeons thought. And so I was asked to consider that and I, and I took the position and I loved it. It was really, it was really phenomenal. Um, you know, great people to work with, the smartest surgeons I've ever met and uh, really interesting clinical problems. After a couple of years with some changes in the division of infectious diseases, I was asked if I would like to be the hospital epidemiologist. And I said, sure, but I have no training. So, you know, you'll have to train me. And, and so I got training in, uh, in uh, healthcare epidemiology, assumed that role. And uh, for the next 10 years, I was the hospital epidemiologist. And that led to a series of other roles that evolved. And they were just, they were opportunities. And, you know, I was opportunistic in, in taking them. But uh, I found myself interacting with administrators and began to see that there was a lot I could accomplish in an administrative role through the things that I was doing, bringing a clinical perspective to it. So I became the uh, director, the medical director of our home infusion agency, which taught me a lot about post-acute care that, I've, that I've, I benefit from to this day. And uh, uh, at that time, there was uh, really a uh, a confluence of HIV and tuberculosis, particularly in the Northeastern United States, but generally in larger cities. Philadelphia had uh, an epidemic smaller than New York City's, but we had one. And I began to assist the health department with managing those patients, and they would often be hospitalized under my, my clinical care. And um, um, as a result of that, when the position opened up with the city, I was invited to be the uh, TB director, the tuberculosis control director for the city of Philadelphia. So I, I took that position through a contract with the city. I didn't leave Penn. Gave me yet another, you know, exposure to administrative work. I was working with a, a unionized civil service workforce and uh, learned a lot about budgeting and cost accounting through the, through the city. 
And, um, and after about 10 years of these sorts of roles, I decided I wanted a, a bigger role in, in administration. And I became the chief of healthcare quality and patient safety here. And that was around 2000. So it's about 25 years ago now. And that was an issue, an area that was really beginning to expand. And there was a lot of public interest in this. And I held that role for the next four years and then became the chief medical officer, which I saw as, a, as an opportunity to have you know, broader um, responsibility in the health system and an opportunity to influence care uh, in, a, in a more impactful way. So look out for opportunities and do the best work you can. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, um, um, work hard. Um, I didn't say no a lot. I probably should have said no more often. But I, uh, um, you know, I just, I just uh, had a lot of ideas, you know, and I, I wanted to, to do something about them. Our division chief at the time was also our fellowship director in infectious diseases. And I, uh, this is before I became the, uh, uh, the city TB director or, or the chief of healthcare quality. And I was constantly, this was pre-email now, I was constantly writing him memos about the fellowship and telling him, you know, I think we need to do this. Uh, the service has grown too big. We need a second service. We better break off and have a, an oncology service. And, you know, on a, and finally he said, all right, you do it. <laughs> And so I became the fellowship director of, in, in infectious diseases. But, um, you know, I saw uh, opportunities and, uh, you know, when they were uh, out there for me I, or offered to me, I took them. And given your background in infectious diseases and with recent events surrounding <clears throat> the COVID-19 pandemic mm -hmm. and how much of a healthcare burden it was on, like, in terms of utilizing resources or expending resources to help the patients mm -hmm. uh, with COVID-19. How did your background come in handy to uh, set UPHS uh, on the best course to address the pandemic mm -hmm. and also help the community around? Well, I thought I was in a sort of unique position with a background in infectious diseases and hospital epidemiology uh, and being in an administrative role um, at a high level in the system to help the system prepare and uh, and react, particularly in the in the first wave, the first year, uh, and in the vaccine rollout. Over time, each of the entities you know assumed more and more responsibility. But you know, in the beginning, um, it was uh, a handful of us, literally a handful. It might have been seven people who um, started meeting every day. We we began to meet <clears throat> on. Uh, I, I have a stack of. You're sitting across the table from me, and I have a notebook here. I carry notebooks all the time, and and I fill one notebook about every four months. And uh, I have a stack of notebooks from the pandemic. And during the pandemic, I was filling them at a rate of about every three weeks. <laughs> and uh, just the volume of information that I was kind of trying to keep track of and, and so on. And uh, I've gone back through my notebooks, and we met for the first time on January 23rd. To uh, you know, the U.S. had had one case, I think, at that point, and uh, that was only a little more than three weeks after the existence of the virus was reported by the Chinese. And um, so we began to think about uh, not really knowing what would happen in Philadelphia, being very much influenced by what we were seeing in Italy first, and then in New York City. We began to prepare, and um, you know, we were thinking about um, the the kind of things that there were no treatments, of course. There was no vaccine. There was no Paxlovid. Uh, remdesivir wasn't available. Um, 
<clears throat> we began to think about how we would try to protect the workforce with PPE, uh, how many ventilators we were going to need, uh, you know, all sorts of all sorts of things like that. And then, um, you know, over the next uh, six or seven weeks, uh, we began to convene a larger and larger group. We finally had a summit uh, about a week before we got our first case, and uh, 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 you know, started masking not long thereafter. Uh, universal masking in the in the system, but I think that you know, my, my background lent credibility to the pronouncements that I was making, but I will tell you, I, I never in my life have felt <clears throat> like I had to make so many significant decisions with so little information. I mean, it was, you know, <clears throat> it was a leap of faith for a long time before we began to, um, you know, really uh, have, have enough information to, you know, to have a firm grasp on what we were doing. So we bought hundreds and hundreds of ventilators, for example thinking that we were going to need hundreds and hundreds of ventilators until we realized a few weeks into it that, you know, we needed to keep people off of ventilators because they were, they were faring poorly on, on the ventilators. But we met every day, uh, you know, I convened a meeting every day at 1230 and we, we uh, reviewed resources across the system. Who, need, who needs ventilators? Who needs staff? Uh, we jerry-rigged uh, a system to provide uh, our electronic ICU oversight to one of our regional hospitals that didn't have it because they had a real shortage of, uh, they only had three critical care physicians. Their anesthesia department was not trained in critical care. And, um, you know, they were really, really stretched thin and they, you know, we thought they could benefit from the oversight of, of folks downtown. So I thought my background, you know, really kind of placed me in a unique position. The only job I had <clears throat> that was really part of my duties <clears throat> was to help Penn Medicine be prepared and respond. But I was I was assigned to the university task force. Uh, <clears throat> to you know, the university had shut down and sent everybody home at that point. But I was also asked by a lot of organizations, <clears throat> excuse me, to um, to consult. And um, I decided that I, I decided I wasn't going to say no to anybody. I, I thought I, you know, I was talking about a lot of the same issues over and over again. There are oftentimes nuances, but, um, you know, I was, uh, uh, it was all, vol I, you know, I did it uh, on their ask. I wasn't going around raising my hand, uh, but I did it pro bono. And, uh, you know, I thought that, uh, you know, the world was in a difficult place and I had some skills that could help. And so I decided I would. But, uh, you know, I advised school districts and <clears throat> professional sports teams and the orchestra and, you know, other, other organizations. Definitely. Thank you so much for the work you've done around Thanks. that. Thanks. Thanks, And um, like you alluded to, information seems to be a very important marker for guiding decisions, <clears throat> making informed decisions, yeah. having data <clears throat> points to uh, create new protocols and safety standards. Mm -hmm. So... What's the process you take, and like what are, what are the what are the diagnostic criteria, if you will, mm -hmm. um, for creating new mm -hmm. sa uh, safety protocols or clinical standards for well, the hospital? Let me go back to the pandemic for for a second. Um, during the pandemic, we had a real dearth of information, so every morning as I was driving into work, I would call each of the chief medical officers on my trip in, asking them what their situation was overnight 
and how many patients they had. This, this is in the very earliest days in mid-March 2020. Because we didn't have line of sight to that, there were no billing codes for COVID. There was no administrative data that said that this is why this patient is here. We could make some guesses, but we didn't know how many patients were here. So, um, you know, we had to, we, we scrambled and built that information and put out a daily report. And that report still comes out to this day. I don't look at it as often, but, you know, um, in March and April of, you know, and, and you know, for the next year or more, uh, you know, I was looking at it several times, several times a day. So, you know, that was uh, a really, you know, powerful uh, example of, of the importance of information because it really helped. You know, I said to somebody in IS, I said, I can't manage. I, I can't manage this. I don't have information. I don't know how many people there, how many people are in beds. Uh, we don't know how much resource we need to move from one place to another. So we, you know, we, our supply chain folks, you know, created a, a PPE dashboard so that we could see day to day how many gowns, how many face shields, how many masks, how many gloves were at one place to another. And I, we would see it and I would say, okay, I'll call Chester County. Do you, are, are you that short? Are you really that short on gowns? Yes. Okay. Well, we'll get you some, you know, we'll get some gowns out to you. Um, you know, we're trying to, um, you know, measure the things that matter to us. And, um, that's, uh, that's essential for achieving, uh, the, you know, the goals that we have uh, for the for the pen medicine team goals. So, um, uh, you know, at this point in time, you, you've probably heard the uh, the aphorism about searching for your keys under the lamppost. Uh, have you heard have you heard that aphorism? No, I haven't. Yeah. You know, uh, a man loses his keys and he and someone comes along and he's looking for the keys under the lamppost and someone says to him, you know, what, what are you doing? Well, I lost my keys. And why you're looking there? Well, this is where the light is. Well, where do you where do you think you lost your keys? Well, it's over there, but I can't see. <laughs> so you know, looking for your keys under the lamppost is you know going to the wrong you know going to the wrong place. So <clears throat> we, um, um, you know, in some ways we we report what we can measure, but we need to measure more than we currently do. So <clears throat> you know, we Penn Medicine. And I was an advocate for this. Uh, has withdrawn from active participation in, in U.S. News and World Report. I don't think it's a good use of our effort, frankly. I look at our director of the Abramson Cancer Center when we're on, you know, U.S. News calls talking about <clears throat> how we can perform better, and I'm wondering what else he could be doing, what else he could be doing in drug discovery or, you know, the science of cancer to, you know, try to try to cure it. And I just don't think that's a good, good use of his time, frankly. And... Um, uh, so what we want to do is create more transparency to our data, um, but um, a lot of it is is not is not there. We're not capturing it. We want to be able to show the full expanse of the care that we deliver and how we perform in different phases of care, from you know ambulatory measures to performance in um, acute inpatient care to post-acute care. I mean, so much of care is delivered in the home now. Uh, how do we, you know, how do our patients fare in the home? Are they, you know, are our services superior to any others? Well, we won't be able to show that because not many are, you know, putting that sort of information out there. But can we show that it's, uh, that it's effective home care? So, uh, you know, we're in the process of, you know, trying to design that sort of reporting system right now. So, um, we, we want to be more transparent. We want to give people not just 
an awareness of whether the hospital is globally safe, whether we have low rates of infection, uh, for example, or low rates of patient falls with injuries, but how do patients fare in very specific procedures and, and types of care? And uh, so we're, you know, we're in the process of, so that, that's, that's the, the impetus for us right now to try to design the, the measurement system. Otherwise, you know, we're, I, I think we're using pretty generic measures of, of performance that enable comparisons across, across lots of hospitals, but I don't, I don't think they're necessarily what patients are, are looking at. Yeah, and I think that's very important. Um, I'm actually in this Wharton medical device course, mm -hmm. and uh, there's a very interesting talk a few days back about how uh, for aortic stenosis and aortic valve replacement, ever since TAVR became a thing, over the years, uh, it's kind of the volume of using TAVR has increased, yeah. right? And uh, it's kind of the gold standard for aortic valve replacement now. Right. So the, naturally, the cost has also decreased sure. per procedure. Mm -hmm. But the way reimbursement works these days is it doesn't really, um, it doesn't encourage or value good patient outcomes. Mm -hmm. So as the cost of the procedure has been decreasing, the reimbursement rate for TAVR has also been decreasing. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And I think you bring up a very good point about just, it's not just about having information, but mm -hmm. the right information mm -hmm. uh, to quantify metrics. Right, right. And I think having a quantification or better quantification of patient outcomes is very important because mm -hmm. with the way US World News works, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's set surveys sent out and it's it's almost like a popularity contest where people are like, which hospital fares best or which hospital is the best? And like based on people's responses to the survey, that has a major determining factor for the ranking of mm -hmm. the university or hospital too. And I remember medical students being very neurotic about those rankings and being like, I want to go to a top five med school or a top 20 med school mm -hmm. when the metric that they're using to even quantify the value of that med school, it might be not the most accurate. Right, right. Um, that's always been one of the, the major criticisms of U.S. News, that it's a popularity contest. Over time, they have reduced the weighting of the reputational score. That's the popularity part of it. And they've reduced it even further this year, so that it, it really is lower than, uh, than it's ever been. But every year, there's some tweak to the methods. And, um, and every four or five years, in my view, there is a major, not a, not a tweak, but a major, major change. And um, it's just so, hospitals don't change that fast in terms of their performance. But those tweaks can move hospitals up and down the list, you know, uh, uh, a number of ranking places. And uh, it, makes it, um, it makes it volatile and I think confusing. And, uh, uh, you know, to me, it just uh, has begun to lose its value in that way. So um, I think there is an obsession with it. I think uh, <clears throat> I don't want to get off too much in, uh, in U.S. news, but uh, I, I, think it's, I think it's a vanity, frankly. Uh, and I think that, you know, people chase it because, you know, students are obsessed with it and, and others are, you know, others are obsessed with it. People want to be aligned with a with a winner but you know u.s news you know establishes standards that uh, they, they be, in a sense become a standard setting organization because they put uh, um, aspects of measurement into their methodology and then you know healthcare organizations you know start to focus on that and um, 
you know, I, I wonder why they're the standard setting organization. So we're, you know, sort of taking that back and, and doing it ourselves. It's, they're not necessarily the right standards. And uh, I guess to talk about data acquisition or analysis of key information to inform your decisions, mm -hmm. you know, with the advent of emerging technologies, mm -hmm. new ways to analyze data with artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. with these technologies intersecting with healthcare more, um, how has the health system harnessed these technologies to enhance clinical practice and patient outcomes? Well, you know, we have a tremendous amount <clears throat> of information in our uh, electronic health record. And we haven't uh, utilized that as effectively as I, I think we can. Uh, we have in the past year uh, uh, undertaken really significant steps to reorganize our, uh, our analytics, our analytics department and make, make better use of the information that's out there. I think the answer to most of the questions that we want answered are in the system. And we either haven't answered the questions or figured out how to, you know, how to get the answers uh, out of the system, but, but we will. And so there's, you know, in a system this size that has come together in the way that it has, uh, you know, there, there are different cultures at different hospitals and there are legacy functions at those hospitals that have continued even as those members have, you know, become part of the University of Pennsylvania Health System. And it creates a situation in my mind where um, the whole is less than the sum of the parts. And so, you know, what we're doing with our analytics function now is pulling all that together. So, uh, you know, some, are, some parts of the system are better resourced than others. Lancaster General has always been very, very richly resourced with analytic functions. Uh, even prior to joining Penn Medicine, uh, other hospitals less so, but we're pulling key parts of that together under the leadership of a new chief data analytics officer, uh, Srinivas Sridhara. And, um, uh, you know, our, our expectation is that, uh, you know, the goal here and expectation is that we're going to have more robust information coming out of that uh, and that we're not the analytic function is not distracted as much by one-off one-off queries that uh, uh, you know give us that less than the sum of the parts sort of uh, environment. And it almost seems that having a very solid infrastructure to enable capabilities for data collecting purposes for within the system is also important. Mm -hmm. Could you uh, maybe talk about a little about? what the most important thing is for creating a good infrastructure to have all the data stored in, in the system and to have efficient collecting of that data? Well, I think, uh, I, I think you have to have, um, let me step back a second and say um, leadership matters. And so you have to have a leadership focus on that from the very top and in the uh, in the analytics in the analytics function as well, and it has to be aligned with the organization's imperatives. So it should not have its own agenda. It might have its own agenda in terms of what needs to be built as predicates to you know getting to the, uh, the you know the more advanced stages of a of a data collection system, but. Um, it should not have its own agenda. Its agenda ought to be aligned with the with the uh, with the system itself. Um, and then, 
uh, I think that uh, I, I think that the, uh, the 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 clinical insight in the system is really is really critical. So there need to be clinical leaders who are working hand in glove with the with the IS leaders, with the analytic leaders, to uh, you know to inform the queries, to inform. Uh, the sort of information abstraction that uh, that needs to occur with the system. So, uh, you know, clinical input I think is is essential to this as well. I also wanted to touch a little bit about shifting paradigms with insurance and just um, I guess with the way uh, medicine works within uh, I guess like the systems that in place that aren't related to direct patient care, mm -hmm. but have an influence on patient care. And in terms of uh, the concept of value based care. Could you uh, elucidate to the audience and maybe discuss how uh, the health system is ad adopting this paradigm shift uh, towards more population health management? Well, we're, um, I, I would say that this market, and so Penn Medicine, has come to value-based care more slowly than others. Um, Medicare has certainly been uh, you know the major player in this and has driven us in, in that direction uh, and over time our uh, payer mix has shifted more and more towards government payers so we're more more and more subject to that um, but uh, as this has evolved over the last decade in the early part of the last decade uh, we were much more heavily supported by commercial payers they tended to align themselves with um, uh, with government programs and government measurements in terms of in terms of value-based care, but they were tiny, tiny aspects of uh, of the whole payment program. Uh, you know, until relatively recently, I, I would say, compared to other markets, we were more uh, in a fee-for-service system, and we still, to some degree, a meaningful degree, have uh, have a lot of fee-for-service payment, but. Um, you know, that's absolutely the direction of the industry. It's the direction that we want to go in, in primary care. Primary care physicians want to be rewarded for the things that they do to, uh, you know, deliver the right care at the right time in the right, in the right place and uh, uh, engage in preventive care. So we have been uh, uh, much more uh, eager, I would say, to be engaged in value-based programs. The I would say the biggest thing that we've done in terms of population health is to become part owners of, uh, of Tandime, which is uh, uh, a physician management group uh, under the auspices, under the ownership of Independence Blue Cross, but we now have a part ownership stake in that, and our primary care practices are, are part of it. And uh, those practices have uh, significant uh, uh, risk in, in terms of value-based care now and uh, uh, it's, it's not all of our it's not all of our primary care patients but it's a it's a captive population that we're that we're focused on and uh, uh, we're you know putting the infrastructure around that to ensure that we're going to have success in it one of our former chief medical officers is the chief medical officer of, uh, of Tandime and uh, uh, you know we we think this is going to be a, a good partnership and important for primary care patients and their and their care and their outcomes and also for uh, you know the the revenue stream to Penn Medicine.
In terms of affecting patient care, do you think um, this partnership would just make certain aspects or bottlenecks within the system uh, less so or just completely remove them just so that there's a more streamlining of patient care if, uh, insurances? I think there will be more streamlining of patient care in the, uh, in the primary care ambulatory system. Um, the challenge, as I was alluding to earlier, is that you know tripartite challenge of uh, uh, access, staffing, and financial sustainability. So uh, we need more primary care physicians. We need more physicians in many specialties, frankly, uh, but primary care especially to be able to accommodate the uh, entry portals of people who want to get into our system. And in terms of balancing resources and budgeting for the health mm -hmm. system, where do you get the most bang for your buck in terms of like the least amount of allocation of resources for the most value and uh, maximizing patient outcomes? Mm -hmm. What aspects within the health system do you think provide the best value for that? I'm thinking about I'm thinking about my own budgets, but uh, uh, you know, I really should should think more more broadly. I think um, you know there are a number of of ways in which we uh, invest in in people in the system that uh, has sort of a an amplifying effect and uh, you know I think the one of the beauties of Penn Medicine is that it's it's really integrated between the school the university and the uh, and the health system so uh, the way in which we transfer funds we can do that because we're one unified organization. The way that we transfer funds uh, across those three entities, university, school, and, uh, uh, and health system, uh, can achieve remarkable results. And I'll give you the most recent example in a moment. But, you know, where we're sitting right now is uh, a great example of the, the proximity, both, you know, physical and metaphorical, uh, that, that we have uh, uh, within uh, uh, within that tripartite structure. So, you know, I look out one window to my left, and there's the medical school, and I look out another window to my right, and there's a research building that is part of the medical school, but there are university researchers, researchers in there, and the campus is 100 yards across the street, and the building that we're sitting in is health system. It's 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 ambulatory, and uh, the ambulatory practice, major ambulatory practice site. But you know, a great example of of um, the value of this sort of structure is the Nobel Prize that was announced this week. So you know, fabulous news. You know, Drew Weissman and Katie Carrico uh, won the Nobel Prize for um, you know research that that began here and uh, you know came to fruition here. And was sitting on the shelf, waiting for you know, waiting for an application as they continued to do their to do their research. But um, uh, our ability to move funds uh, enables the health system to support the research enterprise in in financial shortfalls in in research. So Drew and Katie had trouble getting anybody to believe in messenger RNA technology. And didn't have grants to support the work, and that's the point of the realm. So, you know, funding from the Division of Infectious Diseases bridged their funding until they were able to get federal funding that, you know, carried the research forward and 
led to a publication in 2005 that became the, the basis for, for all of that. So, um, you know, that's, uh, that's a, I think, sort of a comprehensive example of how, um, you know, structure and, and function led to, uh, you know, great, great outcomes in, you know, in supporting, uh, supporting our mission. I can definitely vouch for that as well as a medical student from my perspective. I think it's just amazing how integrated everything is mm -hmm. within the hospital system and the medical school. Mm -hmm. I can come here, do a podcast with you, mm -hmm. walk down the bridge and go to go my to class. class. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, later today I can go see patients as well. So right, right. it's amazing that we have something so beautiful like that in terms of like the system yeah. just integrated together seamlessly. Yeah. And, you know, we're on a mission right now. Because as I said, you know, in the way that the system came together, you know, there are six different hospitals, six different hospital licenses within the system, seven different inpatient sites. There's there's a seventh hospital that's on the HUP, uh, another hospital that's on the HUP license as well, uh, former Mercy Philadelphia. And, <clears throat> you know, we're, I think we will achieve even greater value if we can get to a single standard of care. Now that doesn't mean that every hospital in the system ought to have the same uh, critical care capabilities, for example, or surgical capabilities, but for the things that they do that are commonly done across all of our inpatient ambulatory sites, the, the standard ought to be the same. You know, you ought to be able to expect that whether you walk into an ambulatory practice at the Perlman Center for Advanced Medicine or in Parksburg in Chester County, or in, uh, uh, in Princeton, that you're going to get the same, uh, you're going to get the same guidance. You're going to follow the same pathways, and then if it's necessary to go somewhere else in the system to get a more advanced level of care, then then that should that should happen too. But for the things that we all do across the system, uh, you know, that integrated that integration uh, ought to bring us to a single standard of care. Now we have you know as hospitals come in, they have they've had their own cultures and uh, uh, those cultures have been fine and have sustained them over time but you know we're trying to create a single standard not not a hub standard necessarily not a Pennsylvania hospital standard we've learned <clears throat> from each other we've learned a great deal from Lancaster General for example and the great work that they've done in population health for a long time so you know the the single standard can have its impetus from any any point in the system and looking into the future, what emerging trends in healthcare do you anticipate will most profoundly influence clinical operations in the upcoming years? Well, you know, this is a broad and vague term, I think, but I would say technology. Uh, I think um, uh, where uh, AI will take us and, um, you know, the analytics that we'll be able to do, the, uh, uh, the integration of uh, imaging technology and, and pathology, uh, the miniaturization of surgery, the uh, you know those sorts of things, uh, I think uh, those are going to have profound impacts you know in the in the years to come. Um, you know, healthcare delivery, the practice of medicine, has always been a um, a very uh, human uh, endeavor, and um, you know it it. it you know, I like having my primary care physician uh, who encourages me, you know, to do the right things about my diet and so on. But, uh, you know, uh, and I, I think it's important that uh, we uh, raise up 
you know, new generations of physicians who uh, maintain that humanity in the context of all the technology that will be available to us and translate it for our patients. But uh, I think technology is, is going to have more and more profound effects, uh, you know, in the next 10 years and, uh, and beyond. Could you share how the health system's overarching clinical strategy for the next three to five years accounts for adopting these emerging trends? Part of it is, you know, gets back to uh, gets back to integration. Uh, you know, there are uh, technologies that uh, that we should all have. Um, uh, again, I'll go back to that uh, that uh, those three part that three part challenge that I mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, having uh, financial stability that enables us to invest in the technology that we need. So, for example, while all of our hospitals are on Epic as our electronic health record, they're not all on the same instance of Epic. And so, you know, getting information out of the system that is not on the instance that everyone else is on is problematic at times. The investment to make that change and integrate everyone is very is very expensive, and uh, you know choices choices will have to be made, and made in the light of what benefit that will bring to the to the care of patients as as a whole. Uh, but uh, you know that's a direction that we're we're going to have to go, and uh, so I see us going in that direction eventually, but uh, but not in you know not in the uh, in the next couple of years probably. Other things will take precedence. And to conclude this episode, what excites you most about the future? Boy, I wish I could be here for a long time into the future. I just think that, uh, um, you know, it was so exciting to be here the other day when the Nobel was uh, announced. I was on a uh, call at the time, and, and this, this excites me too. Uh, we're doing co uh, consultations with Ukrainian hospitals. Uh, helping manage uh, injured Ukrainian combatants. And uh, a notice popped up on my screen about uh, Drew and Katie winning the Nobel Prize. And, uh, you know, it just really brought tears to my eyes because I just felt like it was, I didn't have anything to do with it. I'm in the same division in the Department of Medicine that Drew is in, uh, but I didn't have anything to do with his research. But I just feel like we can all here create, help to create the environment that attracts people like that and makes it um, uh, exciting uh, and stimulating and promising for them to be here. And, um, you know, I just, there are just so many uh, breakthroughs that I see coming, you know, in the years to come. I, I do some work with the Institute on Aging and, uh, you know, I see, I'm hopeful that, you know, in the next 10 years, there'll be breakthroughs on Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, you know, the work being done here on MS is, uh, is just amazing. Uh, I haven't even mentioned Carl June, and, uh, whose work is worthy of a Nobel Prize, uh, and CAR-T therapy, and, you know, he's uh, working on, uh, you know, other malignancies now, uh, uh, solid, you know, trying to break the code on solid tumors. So um, it's just really, it's really an exciting time. It's really an exciting time in medicine and healthcare. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, the next 20 years are going to be phenomenal. Well, I had a great time with this conversation. I learned a lot. You gave me a lot to think about. Dr. Brennan, thank you so much for coming on the Stripe Podcast. My pleasure to be here, Sai. Thanks for inviting me.